But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. And then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. And Lord, oh, how we rejoice that at that appointed time, you came down from heaven to be born in the lowliest of, of circumstances. One who is great. One who would lead his people into the promised land. One who would give his life so that we might have life. And, and how we rejoice, Lord, at this time of the year as we remember that glorious day when you were born. We rejoice and give thanks for who you are and how much you love us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 <coughs> well, welcome, everyone, and uh, a special welcome to our guests that are here. And It's just, uh, love this time of year. It's a special time. And uh, when Pastor Dan asked me to teach, I know he's going to be sharing this coming Saturday at 4 o'clock about the birth of Christ. So I wanted to share about something that happened prior to the birth of Christ, and the Lord put on my heart to share about John the Baptist, someone who was specially called to herald the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior, one who was chosen to prepare the way. And so if you would turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, we're going to be going through a lot of verses, so buckle up. <laughs> and chronologically, according to when events happened, Luke is the beginning of the New Testament, because Luke begins with the birth of John the Baptist. Now, the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. Since the time of Malachi... Until the time to the birth of Christ, well, to the time of uh, the prophet speaking about the birth of John the Baptist, there's been 400 years of silence. No prophet of God has spoken since Malachi, but now a prophet's going to emerge, a special one, with a unique, specific ministry to Proclaim the coming of the Savior. And I was thinking about 400 years of silence hearing from God, how blessed we are. We can hear God speak to us anytime. Right? All we have to do is open up the Bible. So, <clears throat> let's read, uh, beginning in chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So here's John the Baptist's parents. Zacharias, a priest. His name means God remembers. 
Elizabeth, her name means his oath. Put those names together, you get God remembers his oath. But what oath? Well, we find out what oath in Psalm 89, verses 34 to 37. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Selah. So God swore an oath to David that one of his descendants would have an eternal reign. Jesus is that descendant. And God will be the one to announce, prepare the people for this long-awaited occasion, the coming of the Messiah. You know, the first prophecy of the Messiah coming is in Genesis chapter 3. So trying to think about how long it's been from Genesis chapter 3 to here in Luke chapter 1 has been about 4,000 years. <clears throat> but finally the time is here. So reading on verses 6 and 7. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. That's a nice way of saying they were old. <laughs> so, John's father, a priest, mother, descendant of Aaron, godly people, righteous before God, faithful to keep his commandments, blameless, but they didn't have any children. And in those days, it was a shameful occurrence. Women were looked down upon. In fact, in verse 25, Elizabeth has this to say after she discovers she, she's going to have a child. Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So there, here's a godly couple. And the father is serving the Lord and they desire to have children. We're told that they prayed about it, but no kids. No baby came. Now God was not saying, as we know, God was not saying no. He was saying, not yet. It's God's, at the appointed time, Elizabeth would get pregnant. Because it's God's plans that are the most important. God's timing is the most opportune time for events to unfold. God has told us in his word, my ways are not your ways. But we have to realize and understand, God's ways are the best. We may not understand what God's doing in our lives, but or why he's doing what he's doing. But you know what? We're not called to understand. God has called us to trust him. So let's look at verses 8 and 9. So it was that while he was serving, Zacharias, as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Zechariah served for one week in the temple twice a year. There was the schedule. He was one of probably 18,000 priests who served in a given year. When it says his lot fell to burn incense, this was something a priest could only do once in his lifetime. 
So this is a monumental occasion for Zacharias. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's, but it's his turn to burn incense. And when he goes into the temple, lo and behold, here's an angel. <clears throat> what a coincidence that it's occurring on this day, right? The stars must have been all lined up or something. No, no. This is an example of the sovereignty of God. God's always in control, and he works events out according to his good and perfect will. So here's Zacharias, and he's got to be thrilled. This is my one day in my life to burn incense, and he goes into the temple. So pick it up in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. <clears throat> so this angel says, you're going to have joy and gladness. Of course. John and Elizabeth have been praying, wanting to have a child. And so now God says, the, the angel says, you're going to have a child. God has answered your prayers. And there's, he's going to do a miracle. Because remember, Elizabeth now is older, well advanced. And the angel said that many will rejoice at his birth. John the Baptist's ministry brought joy to the Israelites who believed his message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There is joy when a sinner repents and receives forgiveness. The Bible tells us that angels in heaven rejoice when this happens. And the angel said he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. And as I think about these words, you know what? That's the only greatness that really matters. We can accomplish great things in this life. We can do wonderful things that bring us wealth, fame, power. But to be great in God's eyes means we're walking in his ways. We're obeying his words. We're fulfilling his will for our lives. And as I said, aren't God's ways always the best now, if God wants to bless you with lots of money, praise God. Fame, praise God. But those things may not be God's plan for my life or yours. But we can know his plan for us, it's great. It's great. Because it's his will for me and you. And if we're open to his will, his ways for us, we too can be great. And, you know, I don't think, can't think of a better desire than to be great in the sight of the Lord. And John would heed God's calling and live his life following God's will for him. In fact, Jesus had high praise for John. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 7, <clears throat> starting in verse 24, it says, When the messengers of John had departed, he, Jesus, began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And Jesus said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And I, look at that last part. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than, than John the Baptist, this great prophet? How are we greater? Well, we've been born again under the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus came to usher in. John was the forerunner of the king. We're friends of the king. John was a friend of the bridegroom. We're the bride of the bridegroom. To enjoy the blessings of the kingdom is greater than to be the forerunner of the king. See, John couldn't experience being born again. He didn't live to see the finished work of the cross. Jesus rising from the dead, ascending into heaven. See, we have privileges not available to John. So back in Luke, the angel says, said that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I believe this is the only person this ever happened to. I mean, even Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was an adult, when John was baptizing him. And God's Spirit in John the Baptist, from the very beginning of his life, was to prepare him for his special mission that he had as Christ's forerunner. I mean, none of us were filled with the Holy Spirit that early. I don't think. I know there's some spiritual people here. But, praise God, as soon as we believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're indwelled by his blessed presence. So, Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to turn the children of Israel. That's referring to conversion, change of direction, turning away from sin and turning towards God. See, John's ministry was people could be reconciled with God if they repented, if they turned away from their sin and turned toward Jesus, the promised Messiah. And the angel said he's going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. Both Elijah and John the Baptist were prophets called to Israel to repentance. And these words here that the angel quotes they're words from Malachi chapter 4, which is basically the last words recorded in the Old Testament. And now, as I said, 400 years has passed. Now God's resuming right where he left off, speaking to man through an angel. And the reference to the spirit of Elijah made it perfectly clear to anyone familiar with the scriptures, scriptures that this child was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And John's birth announcement was at the same time an announcement that God was at last ready to send 
the promised, long-awaited Savior of the world. So the angel makes this announcement. I mean, he, he's in person, standing right before Zacharias. What's his response? Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Hmm. You've heard of Doubting Thomas? Meet Doubting Zacharias. We've heard what kind of man he is. He's righteous before God, walking in all God's commandments, blameless. Yet he's looking at his circumstances first. He's being practical. We're too old. He's forgetting a very important principle. God is the God of the impossible. And he knew the scriptures, right? He's a learned man. He's a priest. Did he forget about parting of the Red Sea? Manna, manna falling from the skies? Water coming out of a rock? <clears throat> but he's focusing on the supposedly impossible promise of having a baby in their old age. And his unbelief is going to cost them. It's going to cost them the ability to speak for a while. You know, there's a danger to doubting, especially doubting the Word of God. Because whose message is Gabriel sharing? Whose words are they? They're not, Gabriel didn't come up with this stuff. He's relaying God's words to him. And one of the ways unbelief can cost us is being robbed of blessings that God wants to give us. Blessings that God has prepared to shower upon us if we would only trust him. For example, someone may be called to go into the mission field in a faraway land, and their response might be, I can't do that. I can't leave home and go live in a foreign land. They're going to miss out on seeing people come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, on, on helping people in a possibly poor area make their lives better. Maybe call to witness to a neighbor or to a relative. No, no, no. They're too hard-hearted. I know them. They won't listen. Again, again, God wanted to use us to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Or you may be called to serve in one of many ways, various capacities. But the response may be, I'm not ready, I'm too inadequate, I'm too busy. I'm going to miss out on blessings that come from obedience. Obedience to God's word and God's will. Doubting. Doubting that what God has called us to do He's also going to enable us to do it. God would never call you to do something and say, okay, now go do it on your own. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has given us of his spirit, and through the Holy Spirit has given each and every one of us spiritual gifts He's given us everything we need to fulfill his plans for our lives. And a well-known verse, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the greatest cost 
They come from a person's doubt and unbelief. Prevents them from trusting Jesus as their Savior. The cost for that is dreadful. It's an eternity of torment in the fires of hell. And there's no greater cost because there's no greater loss that someone can suffer. So we're going to jump ahead in Luke chapter 1. Turn with me to verse, starting in verse 57. Let's read verses 57 to 66. And here we're going to see the birth of John the Baptist. Now, Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. And so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. That's the name the angel said they are to name him. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. And then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So, <clears throat> they want to call, because it's the custom, you know, and I'm of Italian descent, and it's the custom that, you know, the firstborn is named after the father's father, and then the next son and the mother's father. It's mm-hmm. tradition. So here's the tradition. You, you name the son after the father. Mm-hmm. The mother... Elizabeth, in obedience, what the angel said, no, his name's John, and they're like, what, what are you talking about? You don't have anyone in your family named John. And they made signs to his father, which is kind of funny because he's not deaf, right? They're making signs he can hear. <clears throat> but sometimes we don't understand about these things. And he hadn't been able to speak. Now, I'm thinking, woman is pregnant for nine months, so when the angel told John you're going to have a baby, perhaps it's been nine months since the angel appeared to John. He hasn't been able to speak for nine months. And as soon as he regains his ability to speak, what's he do? He praises God. He's been chastised by God for doubting. But he understood God is just. He deserved it. It didn't cause him to lose faith. As soon as he could speak, he uttered Words of praise. He knew that God still loved him. In fact, God had never stopped loving him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, we we see about the chastening of the Lord. Verses 5 to 7. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, my son. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? You know, it's a blessing to be chastened by God. It shows that we're a child. 
of God, right? And, and just as my earthly father disciplined me because he loved me, although I was such a good kid, that rarely happened. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you shouldn't lie in church. I know, that's not right. <clears throat> How much more does our Heavenly Father love us and want the best for us? And so, you know what? I want to have the heart of Zacharias to praise God for his chastening, knowing that he's molding us, shaping us to be more like our glorious Savior. Now, the next verses we're going to look at, uh, verses 67 to 79, these verses are a prophecy of Zacharias. And the first eight verses deal with the promise of God to send a Savior, the Messiah. Remember, it's been a long time and the appointed time for the Messiah to appear is near. <clears throat> in my Bible, it said that there's three types of prophecy we find in the Bible. There's prophecy that foretells future events, prophecy that shares the word of God, and prophecy that praises God. And Zechariah's prophecy is going to have all three. So let's read verses 67 to 69. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's redeemed his people. It means to set free by paying a price. To be set free. You know, before we come to know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. It's as if we're in a prison, a prison of selfishness, living our lives to please ourselves. And we may be trying to please others, family members, friends, but we're not thinking of giving glory to God. I know at least I wasn't. We're in bondage to sin and the consequences of sin, which is death. Now, you don't have to turn there, but uh, in Luke 4, chapter 4, verse 18, <clears throat> Jesus was in the temple and he spoke these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And here Jesus mentions liberty, being set free twice. Because apart from Christ, before we came to know Jesus Christ, we were in bondage. We were in a prison. And Zacharias goes on to say he's, he's raised up a horn of salvation. And the horns of an animal symbolized the animal's power. And thus the Messiah would be strong and would deliver the nations from her enemies. Let's look at verses 70 to 73. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So he mentions a covenant, an oath, and a covenant is uh, when someone makes an agreement with another party. An oath is a promise. 
So what was the oath that which God swore to Abraham? We find this in Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18. And God said to Abraham, Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. And we know that seed that he's talking about is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, a direct descendant of Abraham. And the covenant is the covenant of salvation, one that was fulfilled by the coming of Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Verses 74 and 75. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The Jews would be delivered from the hand of their enemies. And the results of this would be service, sanctified service. And for all the days of our life, we're born, we're called to serve right up until God calls us home. And how this speaks to us, Jesus has set us free but not free to do our own will. When we're born again, our will becomes secondary. We begin a new life of service unto our Lord, seeking to please and honor Him, putting His will for our lives first in holiness and righteousness, as I said, until He calls us home. And that's when we're truly free. Not living in bondage to sin, not living in selfishness. <clears throat> Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, we have enemies, just like the Israelites did. Only our enemies are death, hell, and sin. Starting in verse 50, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then should be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. <clears throat> so we have enemies. Every Christian does. But through Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, 
we've been made victorious. And it's a victory we can never have accomplished on our own. I love that, that in verse 57, who gives us the victory. And because of what Jesus gives us, has obtained for us, we work for him. And all that we do, it's for his glory. John Corson has something very interesting to say about this. He said, so much of what we do with our time, energy, and money is vain. So much of what we do is going to fall apart, pass away, or break down. But that which we do for the Lord, the worship we give him, the work we do for him, the gifts we bring to him, will not be in vain. Even if it seems that what you're doing for him is not making a very big impact, know this, your labor is not in vain. The Lord does not pay you on commission. He pays you for, her, for your labor. He doesn't pay you depending upon how successful you are in the service. He pays you by the hour. Just be faithful to do what he has called you to do and leave the results to him. I love that. I love that. God has a promise here that what we do for him, for him is not going to be in vain. And sometimes we, we think, oh, you know, what I'm doing is not making a difference or it's not having an impact, I'm not doing it right. You know what? As long as we do it unto the Lord, he's going to be blessed and he will bless us. <clears throat> Back to Luke. We're going to finish up with verses 76 to 79. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now these verses, Zacharias is prophesying about his son's ministry. John, especially called by God to go before the people proclaim the coming of the Messiah, the one who would provide salvation. And, and he says here that John will provide knowledge of salvation. John will prepare people by informing them of their need to repent. This was a big part of John's message, that people need to repent. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, <clears throat> Matthew wrote, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you know what? Repentance is crucial to salvation. And I'll tell you why. If you don't believe you're a sinner, you're not going to see any need for a Savior. I know. I was there at one time. I was not perfect, but I was not a bad person. My parents had raised me right. I knew the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. But as Dan recently shared, we can base our goodness in comparison with other people. So I was smart. I would compare myself with really bad people. <laughs> and I came out looking pretty good. I'm way better than that guy. See, we need to understand the terrible consequence for our sin. It's death. It's death, and not just physical death. 
We were going to be immortal, but that ended in the Garden of Eden when sin entered. But hell is referred to as death because hell is eternal separation from God with a consciousness of why we're there. And that's got to be such a horrible existence. I can't imagine the magnitude of pain that involves in, both physically and, and mentally. And that's why God sent Jesus to set us free from ever having to have that fate. We don't have to spend eternity there. If we acknowledge we are sinners and repent, which means to, to ask forgiveness for our sins, to turn away from our sin, to make a, a conscious decision not to give in to the temptation to sin, to receive the tender mercy, I love those words, the tender mercy of God, not receiving a punishment for sin, which is what we deserve, but that's mercy, not getting what we deserve. And here, very interesting, in verse 78, Jesus is referred to as the day spring from on high. And I checked, this is the only time in the Bible this title is used. And it's, it's a reference to the coming of Messiah. <clears throat> in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Now, I understand the, the Son of God, S-O-N, but here Jesus is called the, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N. Well, what does our Son do? It gives light to this planet. Without the Son, the world would be dark. This world could not sustain life. Jesus said... I'm the light of the world. Same way with Jesus. Without him, there's no life. There's no life. No real life. Not a life of being redeemed from the bondage to sin. Not a life of forgiveness, freedom, salvation, eternal bliss. See, I always say, apart from Jesus Christ, you're not alive, you exist. You have existence. <clears throat> and apart from Christ, we sit in darkness and the shadow of death. But we know light dispels darkness. In John chapter 12, 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. See, that was us before Christ, abiding in darkness. Can't escape it. Now, we bask in his glorious light. And uh, chapter 1 of Luke ends with these words, And so the child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So John the Baptist, in preparation for fulfilling his ministry, went into the desert where he grew physically and spiritually. And it says that he became strong in the spirit. Now, the desert is a place of dryness. <clears throat> He's alone. 
No, not really. God's there. Maybe you're in a desert. Maybe you're feeling dry. Don't lose hope. That desert can be a place of growth. It was for John. Because while he was in that desert, what was he doing? He was seeking the Lord. Jesus is there for us, no matter where we are. In Isaiah 55, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. You know, God is as near to us as we want him to be. We can draw near to him, or we can pull away. You know, the first part of James chapter 4, verse 8 says, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. And I've always been intrigued that God will draw near to us, but we have to do something first. We have to draw near to him. And it used to be, when I was down, when I was feeling spiritually dry, I found it difficult to get into the word. I just couldn't pick this word up. And it took me years, but then finally, the Lord showed me how foolish that is. How dumb. This is the place where God can lead me to a place of refreshment. This is the place where I can be revitalized, strengthened, comforted, instructed. Psalm 107 verse 35 says, He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. That's what God can do. That's what he wants to do for us during those dry times. <clears throat> so now we're going to jump ahead to Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at the first three verses. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caphias, I'm not pronouncing it right, Caphias, Caphias? were high priest, while all these guys are in power, <laughs> the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So here we see mention, one emperor, one governor, three tetrarchs, and two high priests. We get an idea of what the Israelites had to deal with at this time. They had to deal with the laws of the Roman emperor, the regulations of the governor that was appointed over Israel, and the judgments of the religious leaders. But now the people, they're going to hear another voice. The voice of God speaking through a camel, skin-clothed man that ate locusts. The word of God came to John. Not any of these important people. As I said, if you're going through a dry time, a time in the wilderness, don't lose hope. Listen 
for the word of God because he desires to speak to you and I. <clears throat> and he preached a baptism of repentance, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was baptizing in preparation for the Messiah. And this blew the Jews away because the idea of baptism, other than a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, was totally foreign to them. That's what baptism meant to the Jews, when a, G a Gentile wanted to become a Jew. Here was John calling the Jews, the very sons and daughters of Abraham, to acknowledge your sinners in need of a Savior. And you can understand why the self-righteous Pharisees had a problem with that. Us? Sinners? No, no, no. You must be referring to the, the common people. The Bible says we're all sinners. And if we're a sinner, we need a Savior. See, John baptized people to let them know that they're sinners. And they needed to return away from their sin. They needed to repent. And, and as John was the forerunner for, for Jesus, for the Messiah, his baptism was a forerunner for the baptism that Jesus would provide. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered, saying to the people, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Let's read verses 4 to 6 in Luke chapter 3. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. This is, an Isaiah, this is a prophecy from Isaiah, chapter 40. And it says that John came in the spirit of Elijah in the area where Elijah spent his last days. And it talks about prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. When a king was coming to make a royal visit in those days, elaborate preparations were made to, to smooth the highways and to make the king's approach as direct as possible. A king was coming. You had to prepare. We're here. John is announcing the king of kings is coming. And this is what John called, John called upon the people to do. Only it was not a matter of repairing literal roads. It was a matter of preparing the people's own hearts to receive Jesus Christ. Now, verse 5 tells us what the effects of Jesus' coming would be on the people. Every valley shall be filled. Those who are truly repentant and humble would be saved and satisfied. Every mountain and hill should be brought low. People like the scribes and the Pharisees, people who are haughty and arrogant, would be humbled. The crooked places shall be made straight. Those who were dishonest like the tax collectors, would have their character straightened out. The rough way shall be made smooth. 
Soldiers and others with rough, crude temperaments would be tamed and refined. And these are all the people that John is going to address in the following verses. But in verse 6, he said, I love this, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Jesus came to save the world. He would die for all mankind. It's up to us to acknowledge who he is, to believe on who he is, and receive that free gift, the free gift of salvation. You know, <clears throat> we love receiving gifts, right? I've received many gifts in my lifetime, some great, some wonderful ones. My bride, our children, brothers and sisters in the Lord. But the greatest gift by far I've ever received, Jesus loved me enough to die for me. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So let's move on, verses 7 to 9 in Luke chapter 3. And then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. He's calling people names. We used to tell our kids, don't call people names. You shouldn't do that. <clears throat> but John has a very important message to share, one that he knows some of the people there are not going to receive. They're not sincere. He's being real realistic. He knows people need to wake up and recognize what their true spiritual condition is. And it doesn't rest on their pedigree, that they're descendants of Abraham. And he calls them to bear fruit worthy of repentance. True repentance will always have fruit. True repentance will always bear fruit because it's evidence that repentance has occurred. The Lord's been speaking in my heart for some time now that there has to be fruit as evidence of salvation. You know, we live in a time now that if you say something, it's reality. Isn't it right? A man can say, I'm a woman, and we are to accept that, that he, he is a woman. And a person can say, I'm born again, but that may not be true. It doesn't make it so. Saying something doesn't make it so. Yes, we need to say a prayer, believe on Jesus, but what's the proof we've been changed? Is there proof that we've had a spiritual birth, that we've been born again? The evidence is what the Bible says, the fruit of the Spirit, which is seen by how we live our lives, by our actions. And I think of the words of Jesus. He said, if you love me, 
you'll obey my commandments. And much in the book of James, as you know, deals with we show we have faith by how we live our lives. And when John said here that every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, if fruit is not seen as an evidence of repentance, there will be judgment. So after he said this, starting in verse 10, the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? They want some practical advice. What shall we do then? How shall we live our lives? And he tells them, verse 11, he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Think of the needs of others. Help provide for their needs. Verses 12 and 13. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Be honest in your dealings with people. Don't cheat them. Verse 14. Likewise, soldiers asked him, Interesting, the soldiers were there to be baptized. <clears throat> what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. Be content with your wages. Don't use your power to intimidate. Don't lie and be content with an honest day's work. All practical advice. How do you want us to live our lives? Basically, what John is saying, obey the word of God. Obey God's word. <clears throat> going on to verse 15 now. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John's baptism was outward, and it was physical. Christ's baptism would be inward and spiritual. And John says he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that's a promise that would take place on the day of Pentecost when the believers there were baptized into the body of Christ. But he also says it's a baptism of fire. Jesus' baptism is one of fire. It's a baptism of judgment. You can't get away with that. And, and look at the picture of the Lord here that John presents. He's pictured as a winnower of grain. And as, as he shovels the grain into the air, the chaff is blown to the sides of the threshing floor. And what happens? It's swept up and burned. Jesus Christ someday is going to judge all who have rejected him. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. 
And this chapter ends, John baptizing Jesus. But I want to close with two thoughts here. <clears throat> I was struck by the, the phrase, John was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. What's a wilderness? Well, it, it can be a dry, arid land. It, it's wild. That word is right in the name. Remember when uh, our country one, one time was, there was the Wild West? It could be lawless. I mean, lawlessness. It could be barren, unfruitful. Can we say, in this country right now, are we living in a wilderness? Is it dry, spiritually? number of Christians around the world is shrinking. Decade by decade, especially true born-again Christians. Is it a wild time? Look at the violence. Look at the violence. Almost every day, somewhere in the U.S., shooting, killing, sometimes children. Is it a barren time? Barren of the word. Are we living and obeying God's word? Not by our government. Not even by some churches. I think we can say we're living in a wilderness, spiritually speaking. John was the voice of someone that cried in the midst of the wilderness. Can we be that voice? We need to. We should be. Because if not us, who? Turn with me, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Starting in verse 11. For the scripture says, well, I'm going to start, let me, let me start with uh, 9, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise the Lord. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? <coughs> Excuse me. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. People are hearing a lot of different voices today. And some voices are proclaiming crazy ideas. You can now choose your gender if you wish to. Marriage is whatever we say marriage is. We need to be a voice crying out, but what we cry out has to be truth, not our opinion. And the truth we need to proclaim is the word of God. His is the only voice that matters. 
And as John's message was one of repentance, that same message desperately needs to be shared today. Judgment is coming. We know that. We have the whole counsel of God. And we're far closer to the judgment than John was living in his time. And the wages of sin is death. It's reality. It's a horrible fate that awaits those who will die with sin on their souls, with sin in their hearts. <clears throat> but Zechariah, prophesying about his son John the Baptist, said, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. I believe we can be used in the same way by letting people know not only the reality of their situation, but showing that there's a way to be saved from that fate, the fate of the lost, pointing sinners to the cross and the power of Jesus' resurrection. That there is one who is light. Simply put, sharing about Jesus. The one and the only one who died for us, gave his life for us, loved us enough to suffer the punishment for sin that we deserve to suffer, our sin. How can we do this? How can we do this? You might think, I'm too timid, I'm too shy, I don't know enough of the Bible, people don't want to hear it, they're going to reject it, they're going to argue, maybe they might even get violent. <clears throat> if we are living in a wilderness, which is a desert, a dry land, just as light dispels darkness, water changes dry land into fertile. The nation of Israel is proof of that. It's a desert, and they're one of the leading exporters of flowers. Water in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit. We've been filled with water, living water. When Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman, he told her, he believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's power to do whatever God wants us to do what he's called us to do. And he's called us to preach hope, the hope we have in Jesus Christ. To preach about the power that Jesus represents in saving the lost. And anyone can have that power. Anyone can have the assurance of that judgment for our sins has not been put upon ourselves that someone else took that judgment for you and I, and that someone was Jesus Christ. So I want to give anyone that's here, or anyone that's listening, an opportunity to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, to receive salvation, the free gift of salvation. In this time of the year when we're giving gifts to one another, giving and receiving gifts, there can be no gift greater than the gift that Jesus wants to give you, the gift of eternal life. <clears throat> so if you would just pray with me. Lord, I thank you for dying for me on the cross. I thank you for taking the punishment for my sin upon yourself. 
I believe that you not only died for me on the cross, but you rose again. And as you rose from the dead, Lord, you promised that I also will, will rise from the death that I should experience. But instead, I rise to eternal life. And that I now have the assurance when I proclaim you as my Lord and Savior, I have that blessed assurance I will be in heaven for all eternity. Lord, thank you for loving me so much. And help me as I begin this new life in you to follow your will, to follow your ways, and bless and honor and glorify you all the days I have left on this earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.